0: I just feel so blessed to be able to gather with uh, our Christ Journey family today right here in this house, in your house, wherever you're connecting with us around the world. Uh, If you're close enough to come to this house, I got to tell you, something happens when the people of faith gather to worship God that Jesus promised that where two or three will gather in his name, we intentionally gather under his character then he will be present. And so we welcome everybody. We still have some seats available. You might need to get here a little early to get them, but we we still have some seats available for those of you who are connecting with us. If you're close enough to come inside, then come feel and share the love of God with us. Um, There's something I need you to know about me today. I have had more problems with myself than any other person in my life. I don't know, is that true for you or is that only me? Uh, I like myself most days, but sometimes I find that I just get in my own way. Um, There are things about me, things that I do, thoughts that I think, feelings that I have that come and go, um, that make me at times my own worst enemy. And uh, am I alone? No, you don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. <laughs> uh, or is that what it's like for you? And then speaking of being alone, here's the thing. Um, sometimes, <laughs> me, alone with me, this is risky. Uh, those... Uh, loops in my head that start playing on me you know people they they talk about self help i got to tell you you know self is part of my problem i need i don't i need god help i need something beyond myself because myself is part of my problem and it's not comfortable to admit that or to say it out loud but it is true <laughs> And when that truth first started settling in on me, that this wasn't just a passing thing, but that I needed help beyond myself. And and then discovered, I was amazed to discover that God with all of his power and love wanted to help. Oh my goodness. You know, that God wanted to help me in my problem with me. That uh, he didn't want to blame me. He didn't want to shame me. He didn't come to condemn me. That he wanted to bring his love to me. That he wanted to grace me. That's a word that we use around here. It's a Bible word. He wanted to grace me. Grace means unmerited kindness. That means I don't have to do a thing to get God to want to spend time with me. I don't have to do a thing to earn his favor, that I don't deserve it, I can't earn it, but that he freely wants to give it, that he's not waiting on me to do something to get him to like me better. He graces me. He gives it freely. And uh, Romans 5.8 is one of those great verses that says, God showed his love for us, for me in this, that while we were yet sinners, while I'm still my own problem, God, through Christ, died for me. This is amazing. So believing that to be true uh, was and still is the turning point in my life. The Bible teaches that the moment you receive Christ and the forgiveness of your sins by faith, that very moment is the moment when eternal life begins for you. You don't wait till you die and go to heaven someday, but the quality of God's life comes alive in your life by grace you have been saved a past tense that's active in the present and through faith so this is not from yourself oh thank you god that it's not up to me who has problems with me to figure out how to get to you no this is a gift from god so if christ is alive in you what do you have to do to go to heaven do you know just one thing Stop breathing. That's it. Jesus covers the rest. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Okay. But as I celebrate that, I also have to tell you that I have learned, even with Christ living in me, that I still have problems with myself. Uh, Things that I do, thoughts that I think, feelings that I have, they come and go. Some of the biggest battles of my life. happen inside of me with attitudes, with impulses, with behavioral patterns, with thought filters that just need to be dealt with. You know, my filter needs to be cleaned. Uh, And Why? Because they work like gravitational forces that just kind of pull me into their range and then pull me down to their level. It's like, it's like I'm saved, hallelujah, but I'm still enslaved. Can you relate to anything I'm saying? If you can, you may be comforted to know that this experience is part of the believer's journey. That the great apostle Rabbi Paul wrote about this in an autobiographical way, his own struggle. Here's what he says, Romans 7. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Verse 22 For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner, a slave, a prisoner. to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Mm. It's like a civil war is going on inside of Paul and he's wearing both the blue and the gray and he's getting shot at from both sides. It's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde simultaneously showing up inside of his skin. Or like uh, little Doke Yeri, son of our predecessor, uh, my mentor, and I love him so much, Pastor Dan Yeri, who after misbehaving, little Doke said this: "I don't. It's like it's it's like sometimes I'm Peter Pan and sometimes I'm Captain Hook." <laughs> Anybody relate? You know, I'm saved, but I'm still. I'm still enslaved, you know, to to these competing and destructive desires that I'm just not fully free. In in many ways, the story of the ancient Israelites in the wilderness is a type, a pattern of that reality. They're not in Egypt anymore, (laughs) but Egypt is still in them And it's influencing and controlling them. And it's something that we just keep on seeing through this wilderness. You know, it's it's kind of the, uh, the ways of the world vying for control and then circumstances that close in on them and squeeze to the outside what's going on on the inside in ways that they cannot hide from and they just can't outrun you see in that, in the story, as we've been making our way through here, we've already seen it. Unbelief is what it's called in the book. It's this basic attitude of doing your life without God. You may believe that there's a God, but you're just living as if God has nothing to do with, with you. It's, it's a non-faith approach to life. It's a It it shows up, it's a non-faith approach that shows up in resisting what God has or even rebelling against it and saying, no, i got this. I'm I'm self-made man. Self is my problem, like I told you, you know. You rebel against God being capital G God with authority and power and love that he can bring to your life. Romans 14, 23, Paul says this, everything that does not come from faith is sin. He's talking about this. If we choose to live from a non-God, a non-faith approach to life, then you're living in unbelief. Effectively, whatever you tell yourself you believe in your head, this is what you're doing with your life. And that's what they were doing in the journey. And it was making a mess of things. Making a mess for the first generation of those that were coming out of the exodus, remember, we saw this. He said, God was with them and watching them and keeping count. And he said, and 10 times you have rebelled against me. And 10 was the number of completeness like the 10 plagues, the 10 commandments, the 10 times you've rebelled against me, and God says there won't be an 11th. In other words, you've completely blown your opportunity to step into my promises in this life, uh, uh, to overcome the giants, to enter the promises in the land because of the non-faith way you are choosing to live Hebrews 3.19, so we see that they were not able to enter the land because of their non-faith approach to God, their unbelief. Now, some people think it really doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter if they believe, but listen, this part of the story's truth is this, that what you believe can either make you or break you. You might not realize it until the breaking comes, but that's what's going on. What you believe can either help you or hurt you, and now it's making trouble, not only for the first generation, but for the next generation. Some of us, maybe you're successful middle-aged entrepreneur, and you got it going on, but you've been basically living a non-faith approach to life. Why would you mess with your success By bringing God into it, well, here's one thing we're learning from the story, because the way you live is the way your kids will live, and then they'll enter into whatever delay or denial you practiced. That's what's happening here. The first generation got themselves left out, and now the second generation, the next generation is stepping up into leadership, and it's more of the same. We saw this the last time we were together, griping, grumbling, complaining, resisting God, rebelling against their leaders, and it's just more of the same, only And now, Numbers 15 through 21, that's the next section we're opening up today, Uh, we're just seeing more of the same. Now, if you've ever tried to read the book of Numbers, it can seem really boring because it's like, again, 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 again. But here's what stood out to me in my study of this. It seems like the same story, only it's playing out with different people groups. We've already seen how rebellion rose up from the rabble, the mixed crowd that came from Egypt. And then that spread to different general population. Every family started wailing. That's verse 10. Then it says that it went to uh, Moses' own family, his personal nuclear family, his sister and his brother Aaron. They both started talking against Moses in his biological family. And then chapter, that's chapter 13 and 14 shows the spies that were sent out into the promised land to come on back. Well, when they got back, they started inciting uh, doubt and rebellion. And so then it says all the Israelites joined in. Look what happened. That's, we've already seen all of this. Those are different people groups. But then look at this. Chapter 15, it opens up with the people speaking God's love language. Because he did talk to them about their worship life and their offerings life and what they can bring to him. And we see them, it's like this wonderful moment of closeness with God where they bring their offerings. Now, God doesn't need their offerings. God's got everything already, you know. But what, what are they giving their offering for? Because when they're giving their offerings, they're making their inner life visible in their public life offerings are one of the external manifestations of the internal spiritual reality of a worshiper. So through their acts of worship in giving their offerings, they are demonstrating their connection with God, their faith, and they're staying clean with one another. Um, And so God responds to this act of love with a memory prompt of his own. He, he gives them a little token to remember him by. He says, I want you to take the tassels of your, the corners of your garments, so everybody's going to be connected in this way, and just attach a blue cord to each tassel. Why? So that you will remember, I want to be on your mind, the, the commands of the Lord, you'll obey them, and you won't go after the lusts of your own hearts and your own eyes. And so why were they blue? Well, perhaps because that's the color of the sky. And God is trying to lift their eyes above themselves and above the earthiness and up. Remember, I have plans for you. And it's a sweet moment. It feels like it, doesn't it? But then we get to chapter 16 and it's like, here we go again. Hi, hi, hi. More resistance, more rebellion. Only this time, look who's doing it. Who's doing it now? The Levite leaders, who are they? The priests. Oh my goodness, the ones set apart by God, for God, to serve the people in God's name. They have access to the tent of meeting, they get to live right around the tabernacle. These are the spiritual leaders of the nation, and they're doing the very same thing. About 250 of them, the story says. They're starting with the Levites, the priestly tribe, and then it spreads to the tribe of the firstborn. Reuben's the firstborn of the family, and uh, his people, they, they go to tell Moses this. They, verse 3, he says, you've gone too far, Moses. Why do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? That sounds like a very democratic thing to say, doesn't it? Only it turns out to be a power move. And what we discover is that it's full of envy, it's full of jealousy, it's full of wanting more for themselves. Now, why would they want more? They're already leaders. They've already been set apart. They're already access to the priest, I mean, to the, to the tabernacle. They are priests set apart by God for other people. So a lot of people are turning to them to get to him, and, and they want more. They, and, and so instead of honoring Moses' call, and his obedience to God's call, they accuse him of putting himself on some kind of pedestal at the top of the hill. And then they have this heated exchange, but the story ends with God dismissing all charges against Moses and then opening up the earth to swallow the rebellion and anybody connected to it. Yeah, I know. It's like, glad I wasn't there, right? I mean, it's like, that, those are some stories in the Bible where you just got to go, whoa, glad I wasn't there, you know? It's like, so, but this is this powerful sign that God intervenes. Now, I don't know what you might think happened after something like that, but chapter 16, verse 41 says, the very next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they said, You killed God's people. How could you destroy all the staff? You know? And they blame Moses. And they start coming after him. They're going to stone him. And suddenly, the cloud of glory, the Shekinah, covers the tent of meeting. And God pulls Moses off and he says, I want to get rid of them. <laughs> and then Moses and Aaron say, no. And they intercede. And they, they stand in the gap before a plague can wipe them out. That's the story we're looking at. The leaders are misleading the people and covering it up with this kind of demagogue statement first they're insolent in their coveting and now their followers are escalating the rebellion to open hostility and then it doesn't stop there chapter 20 Miriam Moses sister dies which means that it's about, it's 40 years into their journey now. 37 years since they were first at Kadesh. That was the border that takes right into the promised land. And, um, and now they're back again right on that border where they were those decades before. And the next generation is now taking point because the former generation has all died off. That's the scenario we are. And look what happens. Oh, my goodness. The next generation does what? The same thing. They rebel. They resist. They bring the unbelief of their parents to live the same way in their lives, and now it's going to complicate their journey forward too. And then I'm telling you, you know, then they bring the same, they complain, they rebel, they gripe against Moses. And then something happens that you'd never believe if it wasn't written right here in the story. Look at this. Moses rebels too. It's like, what? No, 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 no. But it's like Moses says, I'm done. I've had it with you people. Do you realize how many, de- how many, how many, how many, how many? It's like this it's, it's like rises up in him, and he di- di- disobeys a direct command from God to get the people water from the rock. He, God tells him to speak to the rock. And Moses, in anger, strikes it Twice here's what he says. Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then he raises his arm and he struck it twice with his staff. Instead of humbly doing what God had instructed him to do, he, uh, he gets full of himself. He powers up. As if in his belligerent striking, then he's He speaks as if he made the water flow. Did you see that? Did you catch that? And and God tells Moses, I mean, he throws a flag on the play. Doesn't matter that he's in the red zone, that the goal line is right there. Flag on a play, and God says, Moses, you just forfeited your game. Chapter 20, verse 12, since you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of all the Israelites, a.k.a. unbelief, uh, you approach this in a non-faith way toward me. You are full of yourself. You acted as if you were God, capital G, in this situation. I got to tell you, man, I will not bring them into the land with you. God calls Moses out. For his unbelief. There's no favoritism here. You know what we're seeing play out in the wilderness, this whole wilderness journey? It's the human condition. The human condition. Remember, this isn't a story just about them, this is a story about us too. The uh, new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. This is a story we're being invited into to see ourselves. These people, I mean, they're still enslaved by these internal possessions even though they have been externally uh, free from oppression. But they're full of themselves. This is not the positive, inspired faithfulness and gratitude of an image-bearer of the divine being redeemed. That's not what we're seeing here. That was their potential, but they chose something else. These are people that are eaten up with blame, with shame, with defiance, belligerence, arrogance, suspicion, envy, pride, self-righteousness, anger, anger. And it's getting all over everything and all over everybody, including Moses. I mean, from the lowest rabble rouser to the highest office on the food chain. The one who talks to God in person. Hi. All are guilty. None are exempt. None are immune. The sickness of self is at every level. The human condition. So what does that have to do with us? What's that have to do with you? I mean, that's old covenant stuff. We're new covenant people, you know. What does that have to do with Christians? Well, the New Testament actually gives this experience a name. See if you can find it in the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. If you bite and devour each other, then watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. For the flesh... The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. The spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. And they are in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever, whatever you want. Verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, Witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, (laughs) uh, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, and what that means is make this your practiced habit of living Those who make this their practiced habit of life, the non-faith God approach, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you want to be sure you're left out of heaven? Then live this way. And be careful not to honor God that way. Or you think of it like this. I mean, um, the flesh... What's the problem? Let's look at it. What's the problem? The word here in the Greek is sarx, the flesh. It says the flesh is the problem. Fallen human nature, that simply means that our software is infected. So everything, it's not that you're as totally messed up as you possibly could be. It's that the virus is affecting every part of your software. That's what that means. And, uh, not our bios, not our biological life, but this is a word, sarks that refers to the fallen human nature within the soul of a human being. Adam's fall affected us all, and another place it's called the mystery of iniquity. That means we don't know exactly how it is transferred or how it is passed on from generation to generation, but what we know is it keeps showing up. Everybody's got it. The mystery of iniquity is at work in every life, in every culture, which explains a lot about human history and a lot about headlines. This is at work. So think of it like this. Um, The body is bios biological life, this is your physical nature through whom you present yourself, your inner life to the world. But your inner life, Sarks is talking about that gut level that is your soul life, your sinful human nature. This is the Bible's explanation for our problem. So what are we to do about it, is the question. And there are two stories that are woven into these chapters today, that, these pages of numbers that give us a clue. One is about a rod, a staff, that buds and blossoms and the other is about a snake on a pole. So may God help us understand. May those who have ears to hear, hear. The response to the priest's rebellion, when the 250 come against Moses and want to take him out and take him down, uh, God said, well, let's do this. Just have each of the 12 tribes Bring a staff with their name on it. And let's bring them into the tabernacle and lean them against the wall in front of the Ark of the Covenant. That means the holy place, the holiest of holy places, right? Just bring them in. And then it, God says this: the staff belonging to the man I choose, so leadership exercise will sprout. And the next day, Aaron's staff had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. And uh, the others were still dead and still barren. What's the point? Resurrection life was the mark of God's choice for the true high priest. And then it says, now that was to be kept. That rod, actually it shows up in the Ark of the Covenant. It was one of the things they kept in the the holiest of holy places in the Ark of the Covenant. God said, keep this as a sign for the rebellious, that would be me, that that will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. God wasn't wanting to kill anybody. He was wanting to deliver people. And he says, this sign isn't a threat. I'm going to use it on you. No, he says, it's a sign of hope that lets you know that this is the way out of death from grumbling and judgment into life. Verse 21, after yet another episode, we're moving to the second story now, another episode of rebellion where some people are infested by venomous, biting snakes. And uh, they come to Moses and say this, we... We sent when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses, uh, Moses prayed, and the Lord told him, Make a snake, put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look and live. And so Moses makes a bronze snake and he, he puts it up on a pole. And the story says, when anyone was bitten by a snake, then they looked at the bronze snake and they lived. Now, I went back in the story. By this time in the journey, I mean, uh, God had confronted his people about their issues, about their sin repeatedly, right? He's brought it to their attention, 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 attention. And this, in my understanding, this is the first time that the people initiated the confession on their own i mean they they admit it they own it for themselves they don't blame god why did you bring us out here no they don't blame moses you're yeah, sorry leader they actually own it no more denial they say we sinned my bad We're part of the problem here. This is no more blame, no more shifting blame, no more denial. They essentially agree with God. That's what just happened, that their sin was at the heart of their problem. Just like myself is at the heart of my problem. By the way, that's what confession is. Confession isn't going into a closet and talking to somebody behind a screen. In the Bible, confession is about Agreeing with God about you. Saying the same things that God knows about you, but you initiate it and bring it to him so you're listening together. And then God responds to your true confession of your sin problem, of your self problem, by directing their attention to a substitute snake on a pole. Saying, all who look live see where this is going? I mean, the way, here's, the, here's the, the truth that I'm taking away. The way through the wilderness of recurring rebellion, sinful habits, and our addiction to self is through true confession, resurrection life, and a substitute snake lifted up. Hmm. Do you see it? I mean, there's hope for someone here today that's only a true confession away. But not because somebody else initiated it. You, on your own, agree with God about you in your need. And what does God do? He brings resurrection life. I mean, he, he shows up with life inside what you might have thought was a dead stick, but blossoms, and then a substitute snake. So, and listen to this, John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Did you know Jesus said that? He referred to this story, that by believing in the substitute, eternal life will come alive in your dead body. Rod, you're dead stick. And then here's what he said next. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the, the resurrection life of God blossoming in you. Jesus said that that story was about him and about you and about us finding our way through the human condition that wants to keep us enslaved. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pole holding the snake of our sin for the whole world. And God made him who was without sin to be sin for us that in him we might blossom we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, dead body, now raised to new life, reproducing and multiplying eternal life in you. This is God confirming Jesus Christ as his high priest for all humanity, for all eternity. So when people wonder, how can Christians be so narrow to say Jesus is the way? This is it. Jesus is the one who made the way, who is the way, who conquered death, who steps on the snake, who brings life and multiplies it into everybody who looks to him in faith and believes. So what are we supposed to do? Look in faith and keep looking and you will live. And if you look long enough, then you might see what Paul saw that he wrote about with these words, I have been crucified with Christ. That's my old fallen nature my sinful self, died in Jesus' death with Christ and then was buried so that I no longer live, but Christ is now living in me. And the life I live in the body, in this physical expression, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the word body here is sarks; It's not bios. It's not your biology. It's your soul life. And uh, so what he's what he's talking about is the life that I now live, even with my infected software, that I outlive it by Christ who's alive in me. It is my biological life, your physical nature. Yes, these are your fingerprints. This is your body. But I, when Christ comes alive in my body, that soul life that is pulling me down and fighting with me, oh, my goodness, Christ comes alive in my heart, the center of my will, and he starts revealing his life, and blossoms come. I outlive it by his life in me. God's eternal quality of life bearing fruit in your life. And that's why Paul writes these words. That through you, his spirit will bear fruit. And the spirit of the fruit is love. Showing up through you. Even though there may be a battle happening, but God is winning that war in joy and peace and goodness and kindness and forbearance and faithfulness and gentleness. And what's that last one? About self. Huh. Huh. A Self is my problem. He said, oh, Bill, I'm going to show you how to have mastery Hallelujah. over self. So master means that I'm not the slave, doesn't it? And Jesus is saying, I can take you there. I can show you how. Now, that's a lot to think about, isn't it? Um, that it maybe, frankly, this is the first time that some of us, some of you have ever considered this. Uh, but I got to tell you, this is your story. This story has your name on it. This is about you. This is a story about the way God has provided to get you free from the human condition that keeps us enslaved on the inside. So if this seems too much for you to take or to understand all in one sitting, then I want to say then this, start with this. It's kind of summarized in another verse. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, that means agree with God. Say to God out loud what you know he knows about your problem with you. And what's going to happen? Is he going to thump you? No. <laughs> he wants to help you. He's going to come to deliver you. He is faithful. You can trust him. He is just. He will be fair. And then it says he... He will forgive our sins. He will cleanse from all unrighteousness. Confess simply means agree with God. So here's the question. What do you need to admit to God about you? In his presence today, is there something in your life that needs a true confession? Why? So God can meet you with resurrection life. It's not just about a dead rod. It's about a resurrection life. And point your eyes to your substitute on the cross. Bring your failures and your shame to the cross. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Which then raises this question. In order to turn them that way, you've got to look away from wherever it is you've been looking. Where have your eyes been looking? What's got the view screen of your mind? Where have you been focusing your eyes' attention? If you want to turn them on Jesus, you've got to take them off of whatever else it is that you've been looking, including yourself. And this is not easy, right? This is hard. There's so many mirrors in our lives. And there's so many others watching, right? And Jesus said, no, it's not about them, it's not about you. Turn your eyes to me and you will live. Freedom will find you. It's a hard thing to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto him. But I'm telling you, it's worth it. And it is the way forward. I go through a fresh purging regularly. I have problems with myself every day. I have to practice this every day. Jesus said it's the daily cross. Take up your cross daily. And I find freedom daily, sometimes more successful than others. But it's about where am I putting my eyes? And I want to tell you the same thing is true for you. And I got to invite you today to turn your eyes upon Jesus. But I want us to lead our eyes by allowing our body language to speak today. So maybe this this invitation is for you. Our worship response team is going to come now, please, and we'll find our way across God's altar. And I'll remind you that Jesus said my house is a house of prayer, and we want to invite praying to happen in this house from your brothers and your sisters. Just a brief one. Here's what's going to happen. If you feel compelled or moved or take the initiative, you feel like initiating a conversation with God, then here's what I want you to do. You just walk up to one of these brothers, one of these sisters, and say, my name is Bill, only use your name. You know, my name is Bill, and uh, I am here for a fresh encounter with God. And then I'm going to invite our brothers and sisters here simply to pray that blessing for you. But here's what's going to make the difference. If in your heart of hearts, you're showing up with your true confession to God, and he's already put his finger on it. And he's not saying promise me you'll never do that again. <laughs> God knows that we're going to do. We're tangled up in this stuff. It shows up. But you can say to him, Lord, I hear you. And it's this. And I just I'm giving it to you. I'm turning my eyes from me, from it, from others. It's not about who's going to see me. What are they going to say? It's about is Jesus leading you to come? Receive a prayer of blessing. 30 seconds. Don't have to stay long. But if your heart has been moved, then your body language can turn your eyes upon Jesus. And so just for the next few moments as we're singing together, our worship team's going to lead us. You guys are our Levites. You know that, right? And so don't rebel, please. We, we need you to, to bring the heart that you always bring to come. And so as we stand, could I invite you, family, to come and let a brother pray for you, a sister pray for you? Doesn't have to be long. My name is. And then let them offer their prayer as you release to him. The scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is this the day for you to call on him and to take that first step of faith? If you would like to begin a relationship with Jesus, here's the prayer that can help you go there. Jesus, I believe that you love me, that you were on the cross for my sins to be forgiven, that you rose from the dead so your spirit could come alive in me. And I invite you, I welcome you to come into my life, forgive my sins, come alive in me, and lead me as I learn to follow you. Now, our heads still bowed just for a moment, but if you prayed with me that prayer and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, would you simply raise your hand wherever you are, hold it up for just a moment. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In the back here in the middle, thank you. Thank you. Amen. Here in the front, God bless you. Amen. Lord Jesus, for every person by uplifted hand who's saying, my heart is open, we pray that they will feel the blessing of your peace, your presence, and know that the fruit is starting already to rise as we make this prayer in your name. Amen.